this is the Master Gardener Hour, and I'm your host, Cheryl Linker, and I'm delighted today to have our guest, Amy Whitney, who's a repeat guest, and we're going to talk about vegetables. And I'm happy to be here. Hey, and good morning to you, Amy. Um, Amy is a horticultural assistant in the Cobb Extension Office, and she also is a longtime Master Gardener. So tell us... Um, What's going on in the Master Gardener world on the Hortline in Georgia right now with all this crazy weather? Well, you know, one of the things I love about about gardeners is they're so optimistic. When the ground is frozen solid and there's a forecast for an ice storm and the temperature to drop down to 5 degrees, they still call the office and say, what can I plant now? And... Um, they just, they just warm your heart because they are so ready to go. But the climatologist at UGA, Pam Knox, um, because the weather has been so crazy up and down and, and the, that polar vortex keeps sliding down south into the, you know, pretty far into the U.S. and that it's been very unpredictable, she says that this is the kind of year in which we are more likely to have a very late freeze. And so before anybody plants, any tender vegetables, like the tomatoes and the peppers and the eggplants especially, they need to check the long-range forecast very carefully. Some years we get our last frost, you know, in March. So so we're all good to go. But other years it happens as late as the 19th of April. It can be the 24th of April. It can be incredibly late. So watching the forecast is going to be very important this year. And, you know, also um, knowing your region's last frost, frost date, the predicted date that they, you know, for your area. And just know that and then kind of tweak it. It would be my advice. The vortex, I've heard that we're definitely in the south going to get a hard freeze after April 15th. I've heard that from a lot of um, industry professionals that they're already um, revamping their scheduling, and they're telling people not to plant those those summer flowers until later. Right, 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 right. Wow, wow. So Amy grew up in um, Oklahoma, and uh, I just I love this. I have to tell one thing on her. I love the fact that she calls herself a forager, and I talked about it on the last show, but. I just really, really love that because it's such a cool kid thing to do, and it's something that you wish all your kids kind of knew how to do or were interested in to do. Tell us uh, uh, one of your favorite foraging stories. Oh, my goodness. You didn't ask me about that before. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, you know, as, a, as an older person, as, as a mom with little boys, when we first moved to Georgia, um, we were still, my, my husband and I were still out looking for, for free food and and one summer we were out and we had found a plum tree and some persimmons in a in a in a property that were that was you know not not being used it was behind a shopping mall and so we were on the side of the road and and picking plums off of this tree and from the ground because we were going to make plum jam this awesome awesome oh, wild man. plums and and one of one of joe's co-workers drove by and and he screeched his brakes and he's like i can't believe you're out here picking food do you not get paid enough oh god that's good that's good yeah hey but nothing's better than plum jam oh i know it's it's wonderful yeah i had i was doing a recipe yesterday and it was for um it was kind of like a mushu turkey and like a slow cooker and you had to use prunes so this is insane but 
okay, so I go, I go to, you know, the fresh produce. Right. There's no prunes. So then I go, I look on the signs, and it says canned fruit. So I go to the canned fruit aisle. Guess what? There's no such thing as canned prunes. There's, they're not, you know, they're kind of like alphabetical. So I said to the guy, the public, so I said, where are the prunes? And he said, oh, ma'am, they're down on aisle seven. They put the prunes with the dried fruit, which is with the nuts, and they, you know, come in the jars or the cans. But I thought that was really kind of unusual that even though it's wet in a jar and it's a canned fruit, they don't market it with your traditional fruits. Because you were looking for prune plums. Yes. Yeah. The, yes. Yeah, the kind that you make prunes out of. Yeah. Right, right, right. So anyway, yeah. it was kind of crazy. Okay, enough talk, enough talk. We, um, this show was going to be um, taped, and we wanted to put this show on the air like six weeks ago. But because of the vortex and the snow and the ice, and don't laugh too hard, anybody that's not in Atlanta, because you didn't live through it, but we were going to do this six weeks ago. But what we kind of want to do is so many people are into vegetable gardening, gardening, and I'd like to kind of take it from a newbie's standpoint. So, Amy, you're going to kind of guide us through this, and, you know, she's really in tune with what, extension tells people and how they guide people through this process so you know let's just kind of start so from the very beginning the first thing you need to think about is a place that has enough sunlight here in north georgia many houses are surrounded by 100 foot tall trees and that makes vegetable gardening very difficult um, because most vegetables are not going to do well unless they get at least eight hours of sun you can you can get some vegetables, but you're going to be disappointed in your yields if you have less. Um, and, I, and I know for a fact from hard experience that five hours of sun is not enough to get a tomato. And I learned that when I first moved here 20 some odd years ago. Yeah, the, I think maybe a few maybe leafy vegetables could go with yes. six hours, but any hardcore, you know, squashes, tomatoes, melons, blah, 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 they need it all day sun. Yeah, they, they need a lot more sun to make that fruit for you. And so to find a place, you know, find a place with full sun and or as much sun as possible, and it could be that you need to sneak a tomato plant into your front flower bed in order to make that happen. But, you know, most homeowners associations don't really know what that looks like anyway, so you could be okay if you're careful. Um, and so the sun is important. It needs to be something that you walk by or drive by, you know, something that it's easy for you to stop and look more than once a week. Proximity to your house. I mean, that's got to be key. Yeah, because if it's far enough away that it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and you're not going to check on it, you're not going to, you know, tend to it the way you should have in a way that will keep it, you know, healthy and productive. Yeah, you got to look out for, you know, all of a sudden overnight some strange insects could come and if you're not on top of it or you could or you could let it go too long without water and so access to water is also important if the if the hose can't reach to wherever it is your plants are um sometime in august you're going to get really tired of carrying buckets of water out to your garden and so uh, making sure that the hose reaches that far is very important too because 
Although last year, you know, nobody had to use their hose all summer long, you know, because it rained and it rained and it rained yeah, and it rained. Easy water bills last year. Yeah, yeah, easy water bills. It never never changed from the, the winter. Question, uh, if you've got a suburban lot and you're on irrigation and you're going to do vegetables within this realm of your irrigation, is that going to work or are you still going to need to do water with the hose or how are you going to temper, you know, if you've got, say, your turf and your flowers over here and your veggies here and the sprinkler system is overhead going everywhere, how would you work around that? In general, um, in general, an inch a week is what you want for your lawn, and it's also, it, until the hottest part of the summer, it's about what your vegetables are going to need. So that should be okay if you have it scheduled right and you, you know, it turn, turns off when it rains, you know, so that it takes that into account that you don't need more because you don't want to drown anything. Um, but when it comes summertime, especially if you have chosen to use an intensive planting method like square foot gardening, where the, the plants' roots are so close together that they're all interlaced and they're competing for water and they're competing for nutrients, they're in the heat of August, early September, late July, um, they're going to be sucking so much water out of the ground that you might need to water more. Okay, if that I, makes I never sense. thought about that. I mean, you get the inch of water on the top of the soil, but, you know, really what's going on underneath if you've got, like, high-intensity roots. So would you just, like, check your soil to see if it... Yeah, you know, I, most people don't do it, but but I'm crazy. So every now and then I, I dig down with a trowel, you know, just jam it in and pull back and to make a, a open up a little cone-shaped hole, you know, six or seven inches deep and see where the water is. That makes sense. And if there's not water that down below, sense. then you need to keep watering because the roots need yeah. to be encouraged to go deep because that's okay. like the safe place for them. If they're up at the surface, it's too easy for them to dry out. You know, what, what's the minimum for a raised bed with when you're if you're not going to, you know, dig in your soil and you're going to do a raised bed, you know, they I see them in the catalogs. They go, you know, 12 inch, 18 inches, 36 inches. What what do you what's your take on that? It the the height of the bed depends on your own personal situation and what you're doing. So if you have if you've decided to completely replace your soil and you also maybe have trouble getting up and down, then a deeper bed would be better because then you don't have to bend down as far. If you have back trouble, knee trouble, mm-hmm. and that's what those taller beds are really the best for. Um, you know, in my own garden, I think. I, I have the Georgia clay. It's red. It's, you know, if you don't do Delicious. Any, <laughs> for, face, for, for to putting on your face to get rid yeah. of wrinkles, but that's and, about and, all. And you can make bricks out of it yeah. if you want to. So that's always, always fun. And it makes bricks all on its own. Out there in the hot summer, if we're, if we're missing rain, then the front yard pretty much feels like a brick. Yeah. So, but, but there's, there are good things about the clay too. So clay, when it's wet, it does hold moisture and it holds nutrients really well, you know, as opposed to sand where everything just wishes right through. Mm-hmm. And so in my own yard, I have very, very low raised beds. They're really just about four inches high because I dump on, you know, the organic matter and mix it in and bring natural soil. And, and bring that clay up into it because the clay is, right. is so valuable right. and, and right. useful. Right. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about grouping plants when you're drawing out your plan. You know, I was reading something um, that said, you know, your taller plants, anything trellised, should be like on the north side of the garden so as to not to block the sun on the smaller plants. Could you, let's talk about how you would lay out what goes where in your garden. Well, that's one of the things to think about is is the height because you don't want to shade too much. Um, there are gardens for in, in which that layout is going to be difficult. And so those people may want to not trellis as much, but the tomatoes are always going to be tall. The okra is always going to be tall. And if you've gone wild and planted corn in your front yard, that's going to be tall too. And so just thinking about that height and shading can be helpful. But also if the garden isn't very big, you know, the sun's still going to kind of come around. So it's not, not horrible. But other things about, about grouping that are important to think about are, are whether you've had plants from that plant family in that spot before. So if you're not new and you've been gardening in the same place, in the same basic garden area for years, if the tomato family plants have been in the same spot for very long, then that's going to affect the soil in a, in a way that there may have been disease buildup, pest buildup, and, uh, and may have pulled the nutrients out of balance. Okay, I mean, we're going to take a quick break with the Master Gardener Hour and be back, and we're going to talk about grouping and where to put what plant in just a minute. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. morning. This is Cheryl Linker. We're back with the Master Gardener Hour, and I'm here with Amy Whitney, our guest, and we're talking about getting your garden ready for um, planning and just some big theories about gardening in general, to try vegetable gardening in general. So we've been talking about grouping plants. Um, I was telling Amy something I read said um, plant crops with similar growing periods together. What does that exactly mean? Well, I, I would assume that they're referring to um, 
the way you can work with your beds. So if you have if you have plants all grouped together that some are going to be done soon and some are going to be done later, like if you're working in a small space, um, then you then when the ones that are done soon are done and you you can't rework that whole bed because there's still something in there, and so you can't just revamp that whole bed and and start fresh. And sometimes you want to do that in the summer, especially. Here in Georgia, like the squash all have horrible problems, you know, bless their little hearts. They have squash vine borers. They get squash downy mildew. There's a a virus that gets them. And so usually by the middle of July, the squash are gone. If you had planted those in a bed with with a longer-lasting plant, like if you had put okra in that Mm -hmm. same bed, you know, just kind of mixed in because you thought it would be pretty. And and in a a way, it would be pretty. then when the squash are done, you have to be careful working in the bed to plant something else because the roots from the okra are in there, and you could disturb those and mess up their productivity if you you mess with those. Okay. Okay, so you're just – does the disease – I guess I should know this, but is vegetable disease, is it particular to a particular vegetable and wouldn't spread to another vegetable? In general, or in you know, because you hear about tomato this, squash this. So in, in general, that's true. So they they sometimes are by family. So that like the squash, Danny mildew is actually maybe also on the melons, you know, because they're in the same family, and the cucumbers, and they all get that mosaic virus, and um, and so the tomato family, like the potato famine in you know Ireland was caused by late blight that also kills tomatoes but they're in the same family potatoes and tomatoes and so so a lot of times they are specific to family sometimes they're they're more specific but but the good news is one disease typically isn't going to wipe out your entire garden and that's a good reason to make sure that you have varied things going on in your garden so if you love tomatoes you should still grow some other things and not put all your you know eggs in one basket yeah absolutely because last year you had been very sad (laughs) absolutely (laughs) because they didn't do too well here it was it was a difficult year for tomatoes with all the rain and the cool weather and the clouds that people didn't get tomatoes until late in august but I sure did have a lot. Yeah, they came late though. Something I read too. This is this. Do you agree with this? Because you grow for your family and your friends. Mm-hmm. That um, two tomato plants will provide tomatoes for one person for a season. If, is there a rule of thumb for that? It depends on what you eat, right? And what right, you right. love and what your plan is. So, okay. Because that wouldn't work for us. If, unless we were only doing fresh eating, but but we you always do, you do cans well, and, and we we'd like to dehydrate um, slices of tomatoes to make tomato chips. They are so good. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and so that you know we we like to have a lot more. And a, and a tomato plant typically is going to produce somewhere between ten and fifteen pounds of of tomatoes per plant per plant. It, you know, it could be a little more, it could be a little less, you know. So, absolutely. And, that's, and some that's years, just a real generic rule of thumb. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. It is. And so and so when you're looking at, when, when say, oh, well, you need to have this many green bean plants and this many this, you know, to feed, you know, a person, it, it's going to depend a lot on the person and, and whether you mean for, like, just those two or three months of production or for the whole year. Right. And back to the newbie thing, going back to, like, 
the planning part. Right. The what Amy is just alluded to is so true. How do you plan to use your harvest? Are you going to eat it off the vine, can it, freeze it, dry it, store it? You know, you've got to really take that into consideration. So give somebody brand new to vegetable gardening some advice on this. I mean, how would you start out? I mean, you you can't do all of that in one year. You'd be like a super person. No, that's right. And really, for new people who are just starting out, a small garden just to kind of get a feel for things is really a, a better choice. Even if you have grand plans to, you know, freeze, can, dehydrate stuff for your whole family for the whole year, um, it, it's better to kind of back off of that a little bit and, and learn more about gardening in the south, especially if you're from somewhere else. If you came from a part of the country where the topsoil is deep and loamy and wonderful and and the disease pressures are different, and the insects are different, it can be kind of a surprise to come here. I I remember when I first moved here, um, I was reading things. uh, People were saying, oh, you know, if you can grow a radish, you can grow anything. Well, I couldn't grow radishes. And so I've... (laughs) (laughs) Because I was working in red Georgia clay. Right, right. And and it needed more than a year of work to get the soil in shape to grow radishes. And and that, that was pretty uh, pretty big letdown, to be honest, to have people say, oh, if you can grow a radish, you know, you're golden. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> I knew I was in trouble. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, it, is, it, it really, really is uh, a, a learning curve. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk about veggies, I, I love the weed-free garden, uh, you know, like, small quantities of veggies over a longer time in a weed-free garden, they produce more than like a large giant, you know, thing you can't control. So it's better to have quality over quantity for a newbie. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Because you, you can really enjoy a garden that's easy to tend, that's successful, that's giving you food, and it's not overwhelming to start with until you learn the ropes. Um, and then you can overwhelm yourself, overwhelm yourself later, you know, once you've, once you've got the hang of it. And then, then you'll know better, though, what parts of the work you like, what parts of the work you don't like, and then how to balance that with your life. It's yeah, and one, one comment that, uh, you know, I've talked to people about, you know, community gardens are big, but home gardens, I mean, you really need to be realistic with your family members and your work schedule and who's going to do what in the garden, you know, to kind of, and that's really part of the really basic planning schedule is like, Amy, I mean, I know your children help you, you know, but they're small. Well, they're not small anymore. Now they're all big. Well, okay. Well, you're, so you got some good helpers now. <laughs> well, no, no, they've moved out. They're 27 and oh, 23. I forgot that. <laughs> yeah. she, Amy looks like she would have like, an, you know, like a, a middle schooler at the oldest. And so I'm shocked at that. But anyway, I thought she was going to have like elementary and middle school kids. No, they're all grown and gone. Yeah. So um, for a newbie, do you think they should... You know, they're going to start in the spring. You're going to have one plan for your spring. If that goes well, you're going to have a plan for your summer garden. If that goes okay and you make it through the heat of the summer, then you're going to have a fall plan. So you're going to have a spring, summer, fall plan. 
is that do you need to look at the succession when you originally start or can you go spring and then summer and then fall or do you need to look at the big picture when you're planning for a year for a garden it, it helps me to look kind of at the bigger picture the problem really rises um, in the summer when you have crops that are there for months and months and months. The tomatoes, the peppers, the eggplants, the corn, if you're dry, if you're growing popcorn, it has to dry on the, on the plant. It has to stay standing in the garden. So there are some things that are going to be in the garden. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that popcorn dries on the kernel, on the, on the corn? Yes. Yeah, you leave, you leave it. Any popcorn that you buy in America, it is dried naturally on the cob, on the plant? I don't know about any popcorn you find and buy in America, but any popcorn that you have grown following instructions um, in the gardening books, then, yes, you dry it on the plant. I had not a clue. I thought they took, uh, you know, corn that was that they bought and then dried it somehow and marketed it and sold it as popcorn. Okay, so didn't okay. mean to interrupt you. I'm just <laughs> that's like, okay. that's totally new to me. No, yeah. I love popcorn. Yeah. So <laughs> I do too. That's why I'm like curious about this. So, but so, so there are plants that are going to take up space in the garden from sometime in April to possibly sometime in October. Um, and so those are going to mess with, with your succession planting. You know, as, whereas some are going to come out, um, if you have bush beans, they're going to get some disease or pest. And, and after about eight weeks, nine weeks, ten, ten weeks, twelve weeks, whatever it is, some time frame of productivity, they're going to be they're going to be gone. Um, and so you can plan for patches. And so that's part of why it's nice to plant in patches, either rows or squares, and not just intersperse stuff randomly. So you put all your specific crop your seeds together yeah you know like it yeah that makes total sense yeah so that yeah. so that when they all come yeah. out then at least you have a space you know to work with to plant the next thing in that, like you could start like a lettuce or a fall crop a broccoli or something like that yeah and so in in my garden right now i have a bed that has um, onion family plants in it it has multiplying onions it has shallots and it has garlic those won't come out until june so, but then I'll have that whole bed to work with, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, and so I, I, so I have a plan for that. That's going to have a late crop of tomatoes, you know, when when those come out. And so, so that's all planned. And I know that when the squash keel over, then I'll probably plant um, southern peas, uh, kind of an heirloom black-eyed peas that, wow. that I love, and right. because they like the hot weather, and it'll be hot. It'll be crazy hot, and it'll be too soon for a fall plant because it'll be July. Okay, that makes total sense. I love your onion row. That sounds real. What are multiplying onions? Um, so they grow like shallots do. So you plant one onion, and then when you pull it back up, there's a whole bunch in a cluster. So there could be six, seven, or eight onions in a cluster, um, full-sized onions. So okay. They're they're hilarious, but I, I love them. Oh wow. So do you do you keep your your herbs separate from your veggies or do you put them in your same area? So there are perennial herbs that need to be separate. 
That would be like rosemary and oregano and lavender and thyme because you don't take those in and out of the garden. And so if they're in your regular beds, then amending the soil and working with it is very difficult. But there are some herbs that that I use like crops. So like cilantro, which is a spring or fall crop. Um, right, right, right. Definitely not a summer crop. Not, not, we, not learned a summer that, crop. we learned that last time. <laughs> yeah. And that saved me so much grief learning that. We are going to take a quick break with the Master Gardener Hour, and we'll be right back. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with this Saturday's edition of the Master Gardener Hour, and I'm here with my guest, Amy Whitney, who is a vegetable expert and you know it's like you get hungry just sitting here having a conversation with her when you start thinking about all the great things that you can grow we want to kind of introduce newbies to gardening and so we are really going with the abcs of of basics um amy um soil prep we didn't kind of get into that you know because people that's to me for a lot of people, I think it's easy to pick and plan, but when you get to the back-breaking part of getting your soil ready, that's really, to me, one of the hardest parts about gardening. And there, there's more than one way to go about it. You know, no, no matter what kind of soil you're working with, if you have clay like, like most of us have, or if you have sand, the thing you need to really think about is making sure there's more organic matter added into the soil every time you plant. And if you're brand new, you know, making sure there's a lot mixed in to start is a, is a good thing because that helps moderate moisture so that if you have a heavy clay, then it allows the clay to dry out more after a, a really wet event. And if you're working with uh, something that's you know, like a dry situation or sand, then the organic matter actually helps hold moisture. It's like It's like an amazing... 
kind of two two quality thing to organic matter. And also it helps moderate how nutrients are released and held in, in the soil. So that's very important. So and by organic matter, I'm thinking composted you know, organic matter, if you have a compost pile, if you have bags of compost something, or if you've gone to a landscape supply place and got a cubic yard dumped in the back of your friend's pickup truck of some kind of compost, um, those are all, you know, good sources. And then there's um, other kinds of, like, soil conditioners that are ground-up wood bits that are also useful um, for that purpose. Yeah. um, A lot of people that are newbies to gardening, just in my, I I would tend to say they may not have a compost pile. They may not be familiar with all these ways that you know that you self produce your compost. Yeah, I, I mean your supplements. So if you had a list of you know commercial products, I mean it doesn't have to be named, but just descriptions of types of things that you could actually go and buy to supplement. Could you give like a, a ratio per, no, I don't, I don't mean. Well, so it's going to be difficult. So it's going to depend some on your budget mm-hmm. because, because it can get crazy. If you have access to a pickup truck, then buying it by the cubic yard, composted, um, if you can get mushroom compost or some kind That's of. That's what I do with yeah. like Nutramulch from Green Brothers. Yes. Or, you know, it, mushroom yes. compost, you put it in the pickup truck, you put it in the wheelbarrow, and you take it because I've got. And, and that's the cheapest way, and, mm-hmm. and, and there are a lot of landscape supply companies have a blend for vegetable gardens that might be a, a soil and compost and sand mix that they've formulated for raised beds. So that would be a one-stop shop if you had a pickup yes. truck. Yes, or, or, a, or a very good friend with a pickup truck. Okay, and what, what would that be called if you wanted to call around and price that? What would you... I, I would call it a planting mix for a vegetable bed. A planting mix. Okay. Simple, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I would ask for. And, okay. And, and just see if they know what you're talking about, then obviously they may or may have it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I have been to some landscape supply places that didn't. They had something formulated for flower beds, but it was different. Um, and I didn't feel like it had, um, you know, enough of the manure part. Right, know. right. And so it, it may manure, have been treated. Are all manures created equal for vegetables, or do you have a preference? Well, you know, I used to. <laughs> you know, I mean, cow is, is fine, you know. I, I used to go get horse manure at, at a stables, but you can't trust horse manure anymore because there's a problem with uh, persi- antibiotics or whatever they take. It's actually a persistent herbicide that's on the hay. And so they've been, in order to create high quality hay, usually they spray the pasture with an herbicide to get rid of the broadleaf weeds that might be bad for the horses. Right, right. Because some of those, some of them are. And so it's important to kill those off. But they have created these very persistent herbicides that are super effective. Um, And so I understand why people want to use them. Um, But they are going all the way through the horse. They are going through the compost process, even a full year of composting, and they're still active and um, can damage your soil so that you won't get tomatoes and peppers. And How did you figure that out? 
how do you figure that and out? How did you how did you know did you read about that or did you test your soil or how did you Well, I read about it, but I wasn't thinking that it would be a problem in this area until um one of the things I do is I volunteer at a little farm on Dallas Highway on the weekends. And um, it's a, the gentleman who has the farm is older, and his lifetime of experience has told him that manure is good. And so he always has added manure. And one year he, he got his from his pile of composted manure and spread it out, and um, it basically – He had problems. He, yeah, horrible problems. The, the, so the, 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 the plants – passes through so it kills what you're trying to grow yes that's it, crazy it kills what you're trying to grow and and he's had the problem more than once and and that's and um, it was from horse manure and it was from horse manure that he had been given from a friend who thought it was safe but he didn't know what you know he didn't grow the pasture the hay himself and so he didn't realize what it had been sprayed with Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so back to manure. So I've crossed off horse. I've still got cow. <laughs> what What else? Well, well um, you know, the, the mushroom compost is, is typically okay. Um, what about chicken? I always hear about that. Well, chicken is very concentrated. So you get a lot of nutrients, um, but less organic matter. If that makes sense. Yeah, because it's little. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, but, yeah but they don't it, eat a lot of... And it, but it's very concentrated, and so you have to be very careful with that. Um, so, really, if you only have access to chicken manure, because, you know, people people might be, be stuck... You, get, you, get, you have what you have access to. You know, there are limits. If, if you have only access to chicken manure, then I would try to make sure that there was something that's a, a soil conditioner it's you know one brand of that is nature's helper i think that uh, the brand at um that at lowe's is called evergreen something or other soil yeah. conditioner and it's ground up stuff ground up bark ground it's more up. the the plant matter and then you add if you mix that with the chicken manure then you're getting you'll get more organic matter and right. dilute out kind of the the fertilizer part of the chicken manure if that okay. makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I've talked, we've had, you know, chicken raisers, and they've said that they have, you know, rolling hen houses that they'll roll all over their property yeah. and move the hen house. To spread it around. To spread it around and get that. Okay, so so those are options that you dig in to your soil to, to improve your soil. But there is another option um, that I discovered after I'd already, you know, made my husband and, and myself, you know, hurt ourselves trying to mix up stuff into the Georgia clay. And that's lasagna gardening, where you actually layer stuff on top. And then you plant in the stuff you layer on top. And oh, so basically, like oh, so I know. Tell me about this. So lasagna gardening, um, there's a book about it at the public library in Marietta, um, the central library. Uh, it's called Lasagna Gardening. And I'm pretty sure. Um, Do you know the author? I, I, I think. needs to find it? I think it's Patricia Lonza. Okay. And she also wrote a really long article that appeared in Mother Earth News several years back. So if you go online and search for it, if you type in lasagna gardening Mother Earth News, it'll pop right out. Um, and so you know, if you can't find the book, the book has got more detail, but you can still do it from the article. Okay, so let's talk about lasagna gardening. So so lasagna gardening is, is layers of things. So it would be a layer of, of straw, a layer of some kind of composted manure, um, you know, and just and just layers and layers and layers. That's the, the lasagna part. And so you, and you water it all together. Um, and so you're not 
You don't mix it. it up like a salad. Yeah, you don't mix it up, and so so you have to let it sit for a, a little while. It, it, it's going to be hard to plant in right away, but um, if you have time, like if you want to start a summer garden instead of a spring garden. It doesn't have to be all completely it's broken down. It's not too long. You could do this. I think you this could is do this. what we could we could be out there with our ski clothes on, <laughs> making layering all these things in our raised bed yeah. for spring for summer planting and letting it all kind of percolate and get ready. Yeah, and so one year um, when I was making new beds and I didn't want to buy all the manure stuff because I was you know. It's, it's a budget issue, yeah, but, uh, but I had I had access to a lot of leaves, and I could get a, a couple of bales of old hay from somebody's Halloween decorations, and so I was I was good. So I went to every Starbucks in town and got a lot of coffee grounds, which and they're a very good nitrogen source, and I used those instead of manure, and it worked great. And so, for the first year, you know, you, the plants basically stay you know, in that composty layer. So it starts out, you know, you have to make the, the lasagna really tall, like a 18 inches, 24 inches, really tall. But it, but it shrinks down over time. So how many different layers did you have in it? Oh, I, I don't remember. I don't, like, think, I don't think it was that many. Just any good, all the, anything that's well, good. You, you follow, follow her instructions. Right, right, right. Okay, so just <laughs> yeah. follow the instructions. Yeah, because yeah. I don't remember now exactly yeah. what, what the order is or what was what. But, um but her instructions were great, and I but I, I substituted um, a bunch of coffee grounds from all over the place um, for the manure, and 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 I used that to plant in. And the next year, actually, you know, the earthworms had started to mix that down into the clay, and so when it was time to like work that bed, it was all great. It wasn't it wasn't that bad to work with at all. Well, that's that's it's awesome. interesting. Yeah, right, and it's a lot less backbreaking. Yeah, to just you know layer as opposed to mixing it up because that's where the the pain comes in. Yeah. Um, there was one. I had a question about um, the you know back to the manure. Right. Um, how much? I mean, how much in a, I mean, how would, can you get it too dense to the point that it's like harsh, you know, for the plants or anything? If you, if for you're, the seeds? if you're just, um, for plants, probably not. I mean, you could plant right in manure. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I say that, um, you know, composted bags, right, right. you know, manure. And, and I say that because I have done it when my, when my garden was new and it, it takes years, really, if, if you're, you know, working on a, a, you know, a young person's budget to get the soil amended so that it's really good to plant in. Like, my gardens are wonderful now, but, but 20 years ago, you know, that was red clay that was hard to work in. And so you use what you can. And so that when I planted tomatoes, I would dig a hole in my in my prepared bed that I had worked in and, and drop in a half a bag of, of, of composted manure and plant my tomato plants right in it and it was great it worked i know and then you know later in the summer i'd I'd toss a little more on but because i couldn't afford to do the whole bed i mean with everything i mean i had already added some organic matter into that bed compost from the yard that i had made and did it in the specific house yeah i've been there done that yeah Hey, Amy and I are going to take a quick break with the Master Gardener Hour, and we will be right back. Quick stakes. That's Q 
Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. morning this is Cheryl Linker and I'm back with Amy Whitney and we are talking about newbie vegetable gardening this is going to be our last um, segment so we want to talk about picking plants because that's what it's all about you get it all ready and then you got to pick your plants right Amy absolutely and so if you're new it can be easy to get carried away when you're at the garden stores looking at all of the possible options but it can be really helpful um, to the productivity productivity of your garden and to your peace of mind if you can choose some of those um, to be disease resistant. And a lot of them will have they'll say on the seed packet or they'll say on the little the little plastic thing that's stuck into the pot with them um, what they're resistant to. And if they're if there's not a list, you know, be a little bit wary. Most of the heirlooms are not going to have a list, and they're not going to say because. No one has taken the time to do that because they don't they don't make enough money off of those heirloom plants um, to to run the trials to to determine for sure what they're resistant to, and so mixing and matching your plants, but making sure that some of them have good disease resistance can be very important. You mean some you can mix plants that are disease resistant with ones that, that you that, aren't, or, or ones that you don't know that you don't know. So, so because some people say, but I want to grow heirlooms, okay. and 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 so I know Explain that to our newbies exactly what an heirloom vegetable is. Well, it depends on who you ask. Because I really have, I would like to know. So yeah. I hear that word so loosely used about jewelry and clothes and blah everything. So what's a vegetable? Heirloom vegetable. So with with regard to vegetables, typically when someone's talking about an heirloom vegetable, they mean that one that has been handed down for generations, typically through a family or through a neighborhood community, you know, some area, and it's endemic to that area um, and has been saved and passed and saved and passed and saved and passed. How do you buy an heirloom vegetable at Lowe's then? Because um, those people at some point have shared their seeds out. They've um, And so, so they've shared them with someone who's, you know, 
then bred enough of them to be able to sell those seeds. Okay, got it. Got it. Like, yeah, Cherokee Purple's been out forever, and it's actually, you know, my experience is that Cherokee Purple resists a lot of diseases, but because it hasn't been tested, you can't say that it is. And so if you are choosing things, like there's Better Boy Hybrid Tomato, I mean, it's disease-resistant, and so it's a pretty safe bet for a new person um, to to use. Um, Rutgers Tomato is not a hybrid, and it was developed in the 40s for Campbell Soup. So it's not really an heirloom, but it's an older variety, and it's pretty disease-resistant. Those are – I can't believe you said this. Those two are the two that my mother used to grow. Better, and there and there's another boy that's the big big, big boy. boy yeah big boy it's another one which one's better big or better <laughs> I, don't, I, that is, I don't yeah know. I know who I knows don't know. I don't know that's funny but yeah. those those are two because, old school Georgia tomatoes because they're reliable here and so yeah so people have been growing them another one that people have grown um, that's reliable is Parks Whopper Parks Whopper I've seen that too yeah. Okay, so when they're the disease resistant, so obviously a tomato is going to be resistant to a different disease than squash. Right. So you can buy your squash seedlings that are any vegetable. Can you find that's disease resistant? Typically, you can. I mean, any seedling like that you can buy. Okay. Yeah. T- typically, uh, it it will say on the little plastic stick that goes with it. You know, I don't know what those are. The little label things. Mm-hmm. They should say what their good, you know, what what their good qualities are, and if they have some known resistance, then it will be listed on there because that's a good selling point. Okay. Okay. Um, and so and so if like for tomatoes, you can pick an heirloom. You know that 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 is questionable. You don't know what its disease res- resistance will be like. But then also grow a Rutgers so that if something happens. You've, You've got, got tomatoes. tomatoes. Right. And can I throw one plug in right here? Yeah. All across the country. When you're picking these vegetables and you're new, pick up your phone and call your extension agent, and they're going to have an opinion. They're going to have not just an opinion. They'll have a list of varieties that have been tested in your area that you can choose from because UGA has one for the state of Georgia of varieties that have been tested in trial gardens around the state and that have been have shown that they can survive whatever Georgia can throw at them. Okay. And every state across the country, you know, whether you guys you, – I know you guys listen a lot in Texas, a lot in California – and you know it's it's not just well like you take a huge state like California I mean you got to call your local extension agent because it could vary whatever so use that so okay so we're gonna pick um resistant tomatoes the other thing about tomatoes that a newbie might know is determinate and indeterminate could you go over that for everyone. Can explain that? Yes. So in general, um, indeterminate tomato plants um, have indeterminate growth. So they, the, the vines would really, like the branches, grow longer and longer and longer and keep producing and keep producing until the plant dies from whatever kills it. It could be, you know, the first freeze in October that kills it. But those plants can get huge. Um, I, have, I have grown tomato plants that those branches ended up, you know, 12 feet 
long, so they're you know trailing. So you needed like a trailing at yeah like a trellis on a yeah. trellis. You need a like trellis. a trellis for them, and so they can keep going and they can be large. And so if you have a small garden, you might want to be a little bit wary of those um, determinate plants. So once it okay, l- let me ask one more question about that. You get your first flush of tomatoes, right? Okay, you pick those, and then. A branch is going to come out, and you're going to get more tomatoes, and then another branch. Is that how it works? Well, with with indeterminate tomatoes, it's almost continuous. There's no, like, flush, if that makes sense. They just keep coming. It might not be speedy, depending on the variety that you have chosen. Right, right. But but it's a pretty steady pace unless, um, like, it gets too hot for the flowers to to set fruit. Okay. Which it it does sometimes. Um, But the... Determinate plants tend to stay smaller. They get to a certain size, and they they make flowers, and then they make fruit, you know, from those flowers. And so they have a big flush of fruit kind of all at once. Um, It's not perfect. You know, there's, you know, in theory, they're supposed to stop, you know, and that's it, and they're done. But my experience is that they don't really stop. They do keep growing slowly, and they do keep producing. They just, after that big run of tomatoes at the beginning, then then the, the rest of them, down. it'll slow down, and they'll just kind of trickle out. But if you're canning, it's handy to have some determinate tomatoes because that way you have a whole bunch all at once, which is what you want for canning if you're going to heat up the kitchen that much. Uh, so what, per, what percent of each do you use in your garden because you grow a lot? What percent determinate and indeterminate? I never think about it that way. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? Um, what what I grow is, well, let's see. I usually grow a couple of Wuhib and a couple of Rutgers, which people argue about whether it's determinate or indeterminate. The Rutgers? Yeah. Yeah, people argue about that well, one. Well, what do they think it is? Or what do you think it is? Well, originally it was determinate. Okay. But over time it has changed. It's hard, you know, it's hard to maintain a variety without change over over the years. Yeah. Change happens. You know, if there's other tomatoes growing nearby, there's going to be some cross pollination. Right, right, right. And so my experience is that it's um, it's kind of in between. Okay, so you do mix it up with these. I, I mix it up, and so the I, disease resistant is a basically a must unless you're doing something that's heirloom that you want to try and. May or may not be, but the determinate and indeterminate, you can mix that up. Yeah. With no other than space. Yeah. Yeah. Space limitations. Yeah. And and, and just think about what you want. If if your plan is to to do a lot of canning, then it might be really convenient to have more of the determinate type. Okay. So that you can get your canning done kind of all at once. Okay. We could talk about tomatoes are a whole world in the South, but we got to let's talk about a few other, you know, choices and how people would, you know, wisely make choices for good selections for their veggies. Well, um, so when you're looking at beans in particular, um, there are pole beans and there are bush beans. And people who grow pole beans successfully get beans for over a long period of time. It takes them longer to produce their first beans. But but they produce, you know, steadily for, for quite a while, you know, and, unless it gets so hot that, the, again, the flowers can't set fruit, which does happen here in Georgia. Um, but in my yard, I have found, because my yard has a 
problem with Mexican bean beetles. You know, every everybody's got their own little issues, right? Um, so Mexican bean beetles are heck on beans. You know, they just turn the leaves to lace. They'll start eating holes into the beans, and then it's all over. Um, and so I tend to grow bush beans because... Like determinate tomatoes, you get a big flush of beans early, and that way um, I get a bunch of beans before those Mexican bean beetles can create havoc. And I pull those out, you know, after they look terrible. The whole plant. Yeah. Well, yeah, or or I cut them off and leave the little roots down in the soil. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so, and and then after a few weeks, then another part of the garden I plant more in some place where the plants have come out. Um, because by then, the bean beetles are done. And oh, you mean they don't go all season long? Not in my yard. No, not if I take away the, for a the, few, if I take away their favorite, their food. favorite food and then they're. They go away and then they don't come back when you've got the second plant. Well, yeah. Too brilliant. Yeah. Hey. And, so, and so thinking about things like that in your yard can be helpful. Okay. Okay. It can take some trial and error. Now we've, you know, the one thing for newbies that we've kind of like kind of bre- haven't even really talked about are seeds versus seedlings. But, you know, that takes a lot of time and energy. And so I'm going to assume that, you know, a lot of newbies are going to maybe go to their stores and buy seedlings. For a lot of plants, um, buying transplants at the store is a great idea. Tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, especially the plants that have a long time to maturity so that if you planted seeds, it would be a long time before you got anything out of them. But for some plants, um, squash, cucumbers, beans, lettuces, you can plant seeds yourself and they will come up and grow and you don't, and that can be more economical. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's interesting. Um, so you call them, they're, are they really, when you buy something at a big box, are you calling it a transplant? Yeah, or, I do. And it's not called a, a seedling. So it's, a seedling is when it's... Well, they aren't always seedlings. Um, sometimes they sell tomato plants that are actually cuttings. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. They have they have taken cuttings of a of yeah. a of a plant and and rooted it. You know, and they're still um, good plants, but they're not seedlings. We have talked about so many things, and the good news is for our listeners is Amy is here today to talk about new vegetable gardening. She is going to be back next Saturday to talk about some of the details of spring planning. So we are going to, Amy, thank you for being here. It's been great. Thank well, you Well, we've kind much. of been all over the place, but I think we've hit really the highlights on vegetable newbie gardening. So we are going to see, say goodbye for the Master Gardener Hour today. Be safe. Have a great week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.